Hello, my name is Tiff and welcome back to our second episode of the Behind the Collective podcast for this year. This podcast will take you around Australia where you will meet advocates, influencers and champions of the livestock industry. Blythe, our guest of the day, is all of these things. We aim to share the stories within the industry and we were fortunate enough to travel to Blythe's property where we were amongst her dogs, chooks, cattle and you might even hear her guinea fowls during this episode to learn about not only her story but her business and the land she is so passionate about. Hello and thank you for being on here today. We've just had the most glorious tour but we're here with Blythe. Hello Blythe. Hey Tiff. Now we're going to get straight into it. We start every podcast with the three words to describe yourself. I think you've started with the hardest, Mm. hardest question there. I think for me probably courageous when I look back at what kind of I've achieved in my career and things. So much of it was, you know, doing some things which were pretty scary, Mm. but seeing the excitement and the opportunities and the possibility and sort of doing them anyway. Courageous, passionate, um, having a real passion for both animals and people, particularly in agriculture, kind of helping people and working with people. Um, And the third one, probably fun. Yeah. I just love, I love to have fun and it seems so obvious, but I think often, you know, we kind of create these lives for ourselves and we're all grown ups and then we kind of go, oh shit, not having that much fun with this. <laughs> and I've certainly been through that before, but I think the core of my kind of personality and things, I need to be having fun to, to make life worthwhile. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose, I suppose we've been here this morning and we've seen um, your idea of fun and met some of your dogs. <laughs> yeah, my been... idea of fun is thousands of animals. I love it though. <laughs> it's, it's actually brilliant. I, I think it's so important. Now, as I say, where are we now? So tell us about you, your journey within the industry, where you grew up and how, and this is a big question, how we ended up here today. How long have we got? <laughs> <laughs> um, I've had a, a really incredible journey in agriculture. Uh, so where we are now, this property is called Darina, and we're just coming up to our fifth year anniversary here. So we're in Uduk, just west of Harvey, down in the southwest of, of WA. And um, we took over this property from the Manning family, um, who had it for 60 years prior to us. Yeah. And we're in the, the dairy industry in Western Australia for sort of 150 years. So when you're in Perth and the sort of Manning roads and Manning parks and... You know, that was the kind of country which the Mannings were dairying in originally. Yeah, and it's, it looks a little bit different, though, to where you grew up. So, Greener? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so, the, the journey to Darina has been hmm. a, um, an interesting one. So, I grew up in the Pilbara um, in mining towns. My dad was a mining engineer and mum was a teacher. And when I was growing up, we were in a, a little place called Shea Gap, okay. which is near Marble Bar and on Yarry Station. So I was sort of super fortunate. Um, Annabelle Coppin, who now sort of owns and runs Yarry, uh, is the same age. Yeah. And so right. we grew up together and spent a lot of time out there. And my mum had horses, which we took up Shea Gap when we went there. So, you know, growing up riding horses, mustering, being out at Yarry, sort of spending time with Annabelle, time on School of the Air, um, and living that lifestyle is really where I you know, fell in love with, with agriculture and having having a life that was surrounded and supported by animals. Yeah, and was your mum teaching there or were you in the same schoolroom as Annabelle through School of the Air? Uh, no, we had a school in Shea Gap, oh, okay. so about yeah. 200 kids at Shea Gap, but I would actually get time off school to go out 
um, and spend time on the station oh, during amazing. mustering and do School of the Air with Annabelle, um, which was just such a, a fantastic opportunity. Yeah. And then did you to go to school in Perth? There's a lot of people in Iceland yeah. traditionally so do. So my, my older siblings all boarded down in Perth. Um, by the time my little sister and I got to high school age, mum was ready to come down. Mm-hmm. So we came down and went to high school in Perth. And then at that stage, I didn't really see a career in agriculture. Um, you know, I, I was still riding horses down here and loved that aspect, but didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, so after I left high school, I went to uni for a year and did a, started a science degree, mostly because all of my friends were doing it and the yeah. parties looked pretty good. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and anyway, I spent a year in there and then um, deferred that and took a job in the Kimberley, sort of our uh, Springvale station. Mm. So I spent some time at Springvale, spent some time at Mullabulla, and just really reveled in that practical, tangible work, you know, loved the hard work aspect, loved working sort of within that team, um, even though those dynamics were, you know, there weren't too many girls in the camp back then. It was, you know, there have been women in camps for a long time, but I look at the amount of young women in stock camps these days and just go, wow, that's, that's so amazing. Yeah. You know, when I was in camp, you might be the only woman out there you couldn't wear too much praise or be told you were doing well because that had hurt the boys' egos. There was still some kind of pretty clunky stuff in that team management, which I just look at industry now and go, wow, it's, you know, young women and women in general are really leading a wonderful culture and a wonderful welfare space. And um, it's so great to see so many, you know, powerful, wonderful, passionate young women out there. Yeah, I think we talked a lot about this this morning and I think I want to keep hearing about your next sort of few years because I know they were quite diverse, but I want to come back to this because we were talking about women and leadership style and the importance of leadership style and I believe that has laid some foundations for you as a person and as a businesswoman on how important that that is. And what would be your biggest takeaways from that time, do you think, like working in team dynamics and now you as a team... What do you um, sort of implement within your own business? Yeah, I think the, you know, it's it's just finding balance. Um, And I think women really do bring that nurturing side and that seeking to understand people um, and the importance of having sort of happy, healthy people in our systems. You know, if people aren't happy and healthy, then no other part of the business can succeed. Yeah. And so it is having that real interest in getting the best out of people and understanding people's needs... Um, and it is, you know, women can be, can be hard ass as well, but just bringing that balance up of that really caring side, both for our people and our animals and our land, I think brings a lot to the table. Yeah, definitely. Now, I stalked you, as I said before this interview, and I believe you worked in the pearl industry. How did you end up there? Because that sounds amazing. What was that? It was. It was just the adventure. I've always kind of just said yes to opportunities yeah. that would be an adventure. Um, so I think after a season sort of on stations in the Kimberley, I came into Broome for the wet season um, and wasn't quite sure what I'd be up to. You know, once you've spent a, spent a bit of coin at the pub, there's yeah, only so yeah. many times you can go out <laughs> doing before you think you have to get a real job again. And yeah, I ended up working out at Talbot Bay. So Talbot Bay's at the sort of the base or the entry into the horizontal waterfalls okay. in the Buccaneer Archipelago. And so we were on a fly-in, fly-out roster. Um, with Paspaley out at Talbot Bay. Amazing. And it was incredible. You know, we'd fly in on these 
these water planes and land out there, jump on our um, houseboat we lived on, and then our job was maintaining the health of the, the pearl shells. And what does that look like? What does that involve? Is it similar to cattle? <laughs> or chooks? It is, it is nearly the most dissimilar thing to cattle or chooks that I can imagine, actually. And not at all as uh, romantic as it sounds. Oh, really? Oh. Uh, you, know, you had little boats, so little um, aluminium boats, ABs, which we used to go out on for the day. And you'd, be, you'd hook onto the pearl lines, which yeah. the pearls were dangling off and you'd pull them onto the boats and you'd do husbandry on them yeah so you'd check that their their shells were clean that they didn't have any barnacles growing where they shouldn't um, you'd take out any shells that had died sometimes there'd be pearls in there so mm. we weren't doing the harvesting as such but sometimes you would find sort of pearls on the boat as you clean things up yeah. um, and you know this was almost a, a wild system so they were in the bay so you'd have the tidal influx come sort of in and out so just an incredible part of the world to be able to explore and then on days off we'd grab a boat and go out fishing and find beaches and go swimming and spot crocs and head through the, the horizontal waterfalls yeah, which are just such a such an incredible part of the world yeah and what just, a backyard what a backyard <laughs> you know we've all got it as west yeah. australians like yeah. it's just we live in such an incredible state and were you pretty tan that sounds like yeah outdoors like 99% of the time. I should find you a, you a photo. I was very tan. <laughs> yeah. I had dreadlocks halfway oh down my back. Yeah, right. That's so cool. <laughs> and I was like sea cowgirl hippie. Yeah, I love it. I think that would be my vibe yeah. from those early 2000s. Yeah. No, I can, I can, weirdly I can picture that. <laughs> and so your sense of adventure, that's obviously a huge part of you. Is that how you ended up working within the live export industry? Now, um, you've done very diverse career within the live export industry. We've met before. You were actually the facilitator of the live export onboard stockman's course and um, a huge asset. Like, I know I learnt a lot from you and so have a lot of other stockies that have come through. But, yeah, tell us about that part of your life and how you ended up, like, believe in the Middle East for a significant part of your career in live export. But how did you end up there? It's, I guess it's, it's one of those stories of right time, right place, right attitude. Yeah. Um, after pearling, I think I actually ended up in mining for a while. Yeah, okay. Um, I was over in Queensland operating mobile plant for Rio Tinto up on Cape York. And that's when the GFC hit. And they were offering sort of voluntary redundancies. Mm-hmm. And so they gave me a big bit of money to not work anymore, which I was like, yeah. So, um, all, the, all the young kind of really able people who yeah. knew they could get a job anywhere took these voluntary redundancies and kicked off around Australia. And it was actually on my way back home to WA, I stopped in at Yarry where I grew up and kind of did some work with them. And it just clicked into place that this is this is everything I want to do and be. Working with Annabelle was fantastic. Yeah. Um, such an emphasis on team building, on good welfare, good stock handling. At that stage, I'd, I'd travelled all around the world in adventures and just really interested in people and stories mm-hmm. and communication. And so when the opportunity came to go to the Middle East, Annabelle had recently completed her Nuffield Scholarship investigating the the viability and sustainability of the live x-trade and so during that time she'd met up with the Dundons who were based in the Middle East for MLA and she was invited back for some of the festival work so at times like you know and this is way pre-SCAS 
there were kind of programs in place around those peak times to try and maintain and educate about animal welfare. So Annabelle was invited over and she was said, you know, if, you, if you've got someone in mind that could come and help out who has the right attitude, yeah. um, you know, and that attitude is everything, mm -hmm. then bring them along. And so I, you know, headed off for this adventure to the Middle East and it was just, even thinking about it now, you know, touching down and, and seeing the markets and meeting the people and it's so different to Australia, but the, you know, the humanity is exactly the same. You've got people who need feeding and they, they want to, to learn about the process and they want to understand and the more you're willing to put in, the more you can get out. What does those markets, so in market, a lot of, we talk about feeding the world in Australia, but a lot of people aren't as fortunate to go see the people we're actually feeding. What does that look like, the process of them coming and buying an animal overseas? Yeah, because I believe it's very different to Australia. It's a huge family event and the values are a little bit different. We talk a lot about culture and religious culture, but there are some underlying values in the, with the appreciation of food, I think, over in the Middle East in particular or across the world. What does it actually look like? I guess in Australia, and I quite often say to people in this discussion, it's, you know, we don't have food security issues. Yeah. We're a, you know, we're a massive food producer, um, it's been a very long time since most people in Australia have actually been hungry. Mm. And so going to somewhere like the Middle East, which is relying on food coming from all over the globe, and I can only imagine, you know, how scary it would have been over there during COVID. Absolutely. With the logistics issues happening when all of your food is coming from yeah. somewhere else and the logistics are as disrupted as they were. Uh, you know, it makes me kind of feel a bit sick just thinking mm. about the position they're well, in. Even in Australia, as you say, we've never been hungry and people freaked out. You know, exactly. like they, yeah. we were storming the shops and panic buying and we have the food within Australia. So I often, yeah, it's I think about what that looks like for the Middle East where it's there's more process involved in actually getting the animals over there, all the, you know, the meat yeah. over there. Yeah, yeah. And it is, and I find particularly, you know, in agriculture, we're involved, I guess, with the whole process a lot. And I think we're involved you know, in Australian agriculture much more with the natural cycles. You know, the processes of life and death is a, a continuous one, but something we as a culture tend to remove ourselves from. And, you know, in the Middle East, it's, it's surprising because they don't have that big, you know, um, it's not a big rural base or an agricultural base, but they're actually still quite connected with that cycle. Mm. So one of the, the most different things about the Middle East is, is all of their abattoirs are open to the public. And they've got sort of glass screening so that you can see your animal go in one end um, and actually see the whole process from you know, the, the point of slaughter through to the meat coming out at the other end and you telling them how they want chopped up. So if you can imagine you know, a big kind of clear area in the middle with perspex lining and the um, processing chain going around the outside, so you can follow all of that along, which I think is, is such a healthy, respectful way to actually know where your food's coming from and appreciate the process and the sacrifice. Um, and you will have whole families in there. Yeah. You know, that's part of the way people grow up is, is understanding and respecting that something has died to produce this. And mm -hmm. so really valuing that end product. And that was, you know, one, just one of the most amazing things to have, you know, mamas and babas and puppers come down on their you know their Saturday and and get their meat for the week being part of that process being part of that process yeah. it was a really 
I guess having you know grown up and spent so much time in Australia, just a really different thought process towards our food. So you were um, there a lot pre-SCAS. Um, and so trying to uh, implement change, we were still, Australia was still there with our boots on the ground, um, overseeing different welfare aspects of the animal. This was even pre-SCAS. How was that? That's working with people who've been doing things for hundreds of years there would have been some challenges and some <laughs> like I don't know a bit of yelling <laughs> involved in that it's, I look back on it now and you know I was 20 I think I was 25 when I jetted into the Middle East as my kind of the start of my full-time work or employment mm. and the first time I headed in post SCAS festival time was really tricky because yeah. although you wanted to make change and I'm in awe of the managers of our importers' facilities who were willing to let us come in and work with us to make change when there wasn't actually any big stick or any big pressure. Absolutely. They wanted to make change to improve welfare mm-hmm. because they understood it was the right thing to do. But, you know, we didn't have a lot of... You know, no one knew what was going on. Yeah. You know, you've, you've turned up to get your sheep for Ida Ladha <laughs> for a hundred years and this is how it works yeah and all of a sudden you see got this aussie standing there you know this Aussie woman dressed pretty strangely doesn't speak a word of arabic and she's telling you you know the first campaign was in the ute not the boot yeah so you know trying to stop animals getting transported in boots um, and having properly set up so you know they'd turn up with their sedan like they'd done all the time they'd waited through this massive queue like if you imagine you're of an age maybe where you might remember big day out festivals yeah 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 yeah. i'm so sad the current generation doesn't get to experience that because that's my description of Ida Ladha it's like a big day out like there is just that's great because I try sometimes compare it to Christmas but it's not it's so different it's more it is a festival I think Yeah, yeah it's a festival and people and and getting your animal for that festival is you know part of you're giving to people, so it's a third for your family, a third for your friends, and a third mm. to charity. But that is only part of Christmas. Yeah. So, you know, for us, it's all of Eid al-Adha is making sure these sheep are well handled and all the rest. For them, the sheep is part of a much bigger celebration. Yeah. So everyone's coming here, you know, they've allocated so much time for their sheep shopping. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you've got this queue, and you've got these rules, and you've got these strange people telling you what to do with your food after you've bought it. Mm. And you can just imagine from their point of view um, the confusion. And so really the the good humour which they all took it with, mostly, we got yelled at a few times, but, um, (laughs) you know, I don't speak much Arabic, so I let most of it go over my head. Um, You know, I remember this guy turning up in this, like, gold Mercedes with, like, white leather seats. And we're like, oh, sorry, mate, you know, the sheep cannot go in the boot. He's like, what about the back seat? And we're like, oh, surely not. We're like, yeah, it could go in the back seat. He's like, can I, can I put the kids in the boot and the sheep on the back seat? And we're like, oh, no, no, we, we can't do that. So I was like, okay. So we found a friend and dived all the kids in with the friend. Yeah. And then had these sheep kind of standing on the back seat because they couldn't tie them up. And off he went. Mm. Um, and so, you know, there was a willingness to compromise there. But the introduction of SCAS really gave us some framework to work with Absolutely. and you know, just made our life and work so much easier by having that structure where everyone was was working towards the same goal. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of respect, though, to these countries. I know, compared to Australia, we have gone over there and um, 
dictated a lot of change and in a lot of ways it's so well received like they are very open to learning and that's my in my experience and I found that very different to Australia like even working for farmers sorry to say but they're like no, no no this is how we do it and this is how we continue to do it whereas over there they have been quite open to be like oh okay if this is what you really want then which I think um, is hugely different in some parts of Australia hugely different and particularly you know I did a lot of work with the the labor yeah um so working you know stock handling husbandry um point of slaughter training Mm. and it was for a lot of people over there they aren't invested in regularly and what we have been doing you know the the expansive um operations of sort of livestock management in Australia so you know big sheep properties big cattle stations essentially we're sending semi-feral animals over to a country which is used to dealing with highly domesticated animals. Um, so, you know, they're sheep. You watch them in a market and they'll... Sheep will be following their leader, their shepherd, and they can walk through another mob of sheep. Mm. And, you know, it all splits and mixes and they both walk through and the sheep are still it's following incredible. their handler. Yeah. So we say we're sending animals to, you know, countries with no livestock handling skills. Actually, we're sending semi-feral animals into an area which has been domesticating livestock for longer than Australia's existed. Yeah. And so it was more about giving them the skills and infrastructure to actually handle our semi-feral animals. You know, the concept of a race yeah. is foreign because you just take the animals where you want. They don't mm-hmm. have to force their animals to go where they want. Yeah. And so that, that was just this huge paradigm change for me, going, oh, actually, we're the ones who have to go, you know, we need to set things up for our style of animal. Yeah, absolutely. And give people the skills. And people were really grateful because, you know, you guys have worked with cattle and sheep. Having out-of-control animals that you're scared of, you know, when knowledge ends, violence begins. And I'm firmly of the mind, if you went into the centre of Perth and pulled ten guys out of a gym, said, there's your cattle beast to feed your family, you need to restrain and kill that, then ropes, chains, Toyotas would be the first tools that came to mind because they don't have the skills or infrastructure to deal with that animal in a way which is positive welfare-wise. No, and speaking of being open-minded and opening to learning new things, it leads me into my next question about where we're sitting right now. We've got some guinea fowl in the background. We've got some beautiful shady trees. How did you end up here? And I, I personally find it fascinating. It's different to a lot of people who have a property or working a property and the details of that tell us everything because it's a it's a great story yeah so when I met so I was working overseas so I'd go over for shorter term contracts so you know overall I'd spend maybe five months a year over there but that'd be in sort of two week to one month blocks yeah um, and while I was working over there I met Greg um, I was actually based in northern New South Wales at that time which is where I started working with Maremmas and working dogs um, Met Greg and was kind of doing that fly in, fly out, and we kind of quite early in our relationship, we we were kind of both going down this this rabbit hole of the linkage between animal production and land degradation. I was seeing it, you know, where I was travelling all over the world, um, you know, we were seeing it in pastoral country, and from there we, you know, started looking into people like Alan Savory and Joel Salatin and Gabe Brown and these people with developing systems that means that that animal production could actually have positive impacts overall on our environment while still being really productive and feeding our communities. And so, you know, these ideas were running around in our head and we went, well, 
you know there's no point just thinking about it and talking about it let's put our money where our mouth is and have a crack um, so for us we originally bought down near Perth Greg's boys were both in boarding school and so we bought 100 acres on a home loan um, because that was sort of the way we could get our, our foot in the door and then built up some lease blocks yeah so that was pretty cool but that was still we were both sort of working off farm still and that was our toe in the water and in, you know we took on all the lease blocks that no one else wanted because they couldn't make it work <laughs> and so it was real you know it was battler block kind yeah. of stuff but it really allowed us to to play and fail mm -hmm. and succeed and see what impact our management was having um, and the impact of our grazing management was just just mind-blowing in what a difference we could make in a short amount of time by kind of introducing a more rotational grazing, um, you know, lengthening rest periods, really starting to understand what plants needed yeah. to grow and coming to that real realisation that it's, you know, we're not livestock farmers. Um, you know, if anything, we're plant farmers, you know, grass farmers and all the different sort of species which are in there. And to do that, we're solar harvesters and the base of all of this is our, our soil health. So, you know, really these days our farming is based on our soil health. And if we get that right, then everything down the chain benefits. So we, we're having this wonderful time at Runnymede and through the, the stockies course and some vets I'd worked, which is sort of mainly dairy-based, uh, they'd always told me if I ever got the chance, or we used to tell the whole stockies course, if you ever get the chance, go and do some time in a dairy. Mm -hmm. You'll get to, you know, do more carvings in a week than you'll do in a... 100 years in beef, <laughs> you'll get to use more medications in a dairy yeah. system. It's, it's just so much more intensively mm. managed. And so one of our neighbours kind of invited me along. He was running dry heifers next to us. Um, he said, oh, look, I need someone to help on the weekends. Do you want to come and have a look? And I thought, I went, oh, well, you know, what could go wrong? Um, and came along and started doing some relief milking. So yeah. some weekends, covering peak holidays for Graham and Jane Manning and did this for a couple of years and really interesting process absolute salt of the earth people really you know lovely people skills really interested in the people working with them gave us lots of opportunities and unfortunately um end of 2016 there were some major contract cuts um, with one of the processors browns and graham and a number of other producers were, were forced out of industry that was a really really tough time you know no other processors would take them up for sort of any love or money or you know any low price and so they were forced essentially to, to finish dairying so most of the cows were were sold off ironically to herds that were still providing all of these processes <laughs> yeah. um, so you know and that was I guess I work well under pressure you know dealing with large numbers of animals I guess during that really difficult time, I really supported Graham and Jane through that um, with the livestock side of things, helping process animals, get them ready to go, um, doing the paperwork and the, the transfers, and helped them transition into beef backgrounding, which Graham did for a few years, and then it got to a point he really wanted to retire. Uh, so when he put the property on the market, Greg and I sort of did look at it, but it was just too big a too big a parcel for us to jump to. Um, it wasn't wasn't possible in a traditional sense. And once it had been on the market for a while, Graham sort of approached us and said, right, let's let's sit down and throw some ideas around on how we could actually make this work. Yeah. Um, so an incredible opportunity, but based on a really deep mutual respect for each other's, I guess, work ethic and integrity. 
um, and just wouldn't be possible without feeling really sure that everyone was going to do the right thing. Um, so we worked through what we call a stage succession. Um, so, you know, one of the, the bigger blocks didn't fit into the longer term plan, so they, they would sell that separately. Um, we would take on the lease of the property straight away and put our property on the market and then buy the titles over a, a number of years. So, you know, Graham got the, the price that they wanted and the, the knowledge that it was going to be taken on by people who really loved it and would do the right thing by it. And we got the time to build equity and get the business sorted to be able to buy the blocks down the track. Mm -hmm. So an incredibly generous um, offer and opportunity from them, um, but also gives them still the connection and the knowledge that they were passing this on to people who really, you know, really mm -hmm. want to be here long term and improve the health of the whole system and really love this bit of land. That's incredible. Um, and so with that all in mind, what does the average day look like for you? So we've just been out and basically been eaten alive by your chooks who are so happy. <laughs> so they're just living their best lives. We've met the dogs, the cattle. What does the day in the life look like and what's your business now? So you've, yeah, you've got your fingers in a few pies still. As I say, you've got a few things happening, a few pets around. I should say pets really, but they are, they're so friendly. What does the day, what does the day look like for you? Yeah, so on the farm, so we are pretty busy. Um, you know, the chook business is now at a scale where we have a full-time employee working within the chook business, yeah. which is great for me. I really like the, the innovation stage and developing systems, um, but the day-to-day -day of egg collecting and processing um, is not something I want to do forever. Yeah. Um, so we, we've got the, the birds, we run about 2,500 birds, and then we run about 140 head of beef breeders. Yeah. During you know good market cycles with the beef, the, the chook and the beef enterprises are pretty equal. Um, but when we go through low parts of the cycle like we are now, the chooks actually just give us so much more flexibility um, and profitability in, in markets like this. And so particularly because we didn't want to go down the high input line, yeah. um, this country has had a, a really heavy fertiliser history, uh, really heavy irrigation history. The, the state of the soil health and things, we really needed to break that cycle and get some more natural function back into our soils. And so we didn't want to be running the, the cattle side really heavily. Mm -hmm. We needed to take our foot off the pedal there and the chooks have allowed us to do that. And so tell me about how they live. So they're literally living their best lives. As I say, what does that look? There's caravans out there. So tell us about pasture-raised eggs and what that is for the listeners who might not know. So the pasture raised system relies on a mobile set of infrastructure. So the chooks have mobile houses where they roost at night and lay their eggs. Those for us, those never shut up. So they don't close at night and they're moved every two to three days around about 200 acres that the chooks have. Um, so they're 24 seven open to the outdoors. They're grazing pasture. The Housing all has mesh floors, so the manure is falling down and sort of fertilising our paddocks. And the, the key to the mobility of our operation is our guardian dogs. So we have some maremmas and some Anatolians. And they protect the birds against foxes, mostly foxes, but we also get some aerial predation by wedge-tail eagles. Yeah. They come and visit. And so the... The movement is the key, so it's pressure. It's kind of like low-stress livestock handling. Yeah. It, it's the pressure on, pressure off, which creates the good outcome. So, you know, you have a lot of chooks in one place for a short amount of time. The chooks stay pretty close to their houses, so even though we don't have fencing, 
they won't wander much more than, most of the flock won't go much more than say 100 metres from the bands. Um, so they're there for a few days and then they're on to a new space. And so they, you know, they've grazed, they've fertilised and then that ground gets time to recover. And our hens won't be back there for about 12 months. That's really cool. And your business, it's unique in the sense not many farmers do this. You open it up completely to the public. You allow people to come on property. And where did that stem from, that idea? Or even, you know, were you ever afraid of doing that? Or was that something important to you? And you sell directly, what, 50% of your eggs you were saying today, to the consumer. What have you learnt from that process and how did you, you know, do that? Yeah, we've, we've learnt a lot of things through that. Uh, the... The transparency about our operations, I guess we learnt so much, you know, we, we actually went on a trip to the States, um, 2015 maybe, and went and visited Polyface Farms where Joel Salatin is. So they have a 100% open farm policy. People can come at any time yeah. and have a look around, um, you know, just the generosity of people with their knowledge and information particularly in the regenerative space is incredible Mm. because we're all actually out for a bigger outcome than personal growth or personal profit or or family benefit. Um, We really believe that by improving our soil health and systems that we can contribute towards some of the biggest challenges this planet is facing um, and feed our communities at the same time. You know, I think there's so much to offer by everyone taking even little steps towards protecting and encouraging the health of our soils. Um, we, we don't have a 100% sort of open gate policy simply from a, a time <laughs> management. You know, we've had a few people crop up where I'm out in the paddock and all of a sudden there's someone walking down the road and I'm like, what the <laughs> As much as the troops um, would love that. <laughs> they'd be like, oh, someone else to pack and say hello to. <laughs> and it's from like security as well. You want to well, protect your animals. Biosecurity and just general security, yeah. you know, and safety yeah. these days. Having people just wandering around a farm is just, you know, yeah. I, I really admire the people who do have a 100% sort of open policy. But for us, we're a bit more structured about it. Mm. So we have at least one big open day a year. Um, where everyone comes, we do a tour of the chickens, tour of the cattle, um, you know, lovely big picnic, and and we're really transparent in our social media. That's, yeah. You know, the social media is, you know, I don't see it. It's not a way to gain customers, or um, it's more about sharing information and sharing a window into our daily lives mm-hmm. on the farm. And because we do have that, really, so fifty percent of our eggs go to. Wholesalers, 50% go into direct into a farmer's market, which we, we sort of represent at. And so we do have that really good connection with um, our consumers. And it's something I think not enough producers get. Like even in, just in some way, looking for that feedback and appreciation for all of the hard yeah. work that gets in is... That's really interesting. We talk a lot about doing it for the consumer to ask the questions, but that's a really valid and interesting point that the producers, so they get that validation. Because I suppose if you're out there just within your own boundary fence, sometimes you would question, why am I doing this? And if you're just putting things into, you know, if you're selling things into the commodity market, you never actually have someone look you in the eye and say, God, that was a good steak. Thank you. Um, you know your loaf of bread your liters of milk it's i think there's yeah there's so much benefit from both sides both understanding the consumer Mm. and being able to tell our story yeah because the story of you know australian agriculture is overall so good 
but you know, media stories invariably it plays, plays on the drama and it plays on the trauma and just seeing agriculture represented when there's a flood or a drought or something awful happening mm -hmm. is really unfair because people are working really hard at producing you know, incredible food under some really tough conditions. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, the more urban population does want to connect with that. Yeah. Yeah. So Are I you think... finding that going to the markets that, you know, Absolutely. what's the most commonly asked question to you as a farmer? And um, I know where, you know, the Livestock Collective is hugely about f filling the void. Like if there's information not there, someone else will fill it. So we're all about having those conversations. So do you have any advice for any other farmers around that or what to expect in those conversations? I think it's been a bit, you know, that seeking to understand, you know, why people are asking those questions. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we're quite used to being defensive because people are used to agriculture being attacked in some way. But it's actually kind of understanding why people are asking those questions. You know, is it that they've been fed misinformation? Is it that they don't understand the whole process? Um, you know, we get, we get a lot of questions asked about whether we're organic and we're not. But the, and there's some really interesting conversations to be had there. You know, we don't produce a lot of organic grain in Western Australia. You know, a lot of, a lot of the livestock organic grain actually comes from the Eastern States. I'm totally uncomfortable with that as far as a, a carbon footprint and a yeah. food miles perspective is trucking grain across the country for livestock. And so, you know, we are thoughtful about where we source our grain from and we want everyone in that supply chain to be sort of responsibly growing. But that's a choice we've made to stay, you know, both affordable to our consumers mm -hmm. and to align with our values. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people have, want to know the difference between free range and pasture raised. Um, you know, and there are just telling your story, just telling your story, not letting defensiveness get in the way. You know, of course, there are benefits to, you know, big, intensive, free range systems. You know, the biggest one is your eggs are cheaper. Mm. But at the same time, if people are spending, you know, five, six dollars for a takeaway coffee and think ten dollars a dozen for pasture raised eggs is too expensive, then, you know, don't say you care about animal welfare. Yeah, yeah. It's something, you know, the, the choices we make, just exploring in a, a gentle way that includes people in the conversation. Absolutely. Um, can really change the, the way you perceive. Mm, absolutely. Now, one of your strengths is your communication, your ability to communicate with people. And I think that stems a lot from years of experience. So we did touch on it earlier, but I want to know what advice you would have as a now boss advice, you know, within the industry, one on social media, how to engage in conversation and do that in a way that you think is effective, but also just within the industry as a whole and your leadership style. I understand that that's something that's really important to you. I know that's a big question, um, but what, you know, advice for other growers or farmers on how to be the best, I suppose, communicator and leader. And I think it's interesting for me because I've kind of gone from, from a stage where I looked to other people for leadership. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden you kind of, I think you reach this point in time where you're kind of like, shit, I've, I've got nearly years, as many years behind me as I've got in front of me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's I think I'm actually book. part of, yeah. I am a leader now. Yeah, and it's, yeah. you know, kind of realising that you do have that, it's not so much power, but that ability to influence the way people, the way, you know, the way cultures are developing in businesses yeah. and particularly the culture in your own business um, and that we are in control of it. You know, the only thing in life we're in control of is our own actions and reactions. 
and taking responsibility for that and our impact on other people um, is so important. And at the end of the day, you know, if and as I said earlier already, like people is the key to any success. Mm. Like if we can empower people to make their own good decisions, you know, be brave, follow their passions, um, be fulfilled and content, that's going to benefit both our businesses and them mm. for the rest of their lives. And so really understanding what people want out of their time in our employment or in a team and how people work together and understanding, you know, it's been a, a real highlight of 2023 for me was sort of starting doing the disc profiling and running yeah. out some workshops with the Livestock Collective because the power of understanding people think differently and act differently and that's okay that's actually not only is it okay that is a huge benefit to mm -hmm. a team environment of understanding people's strengths and matching tasks and communication to those areas and helping people work on the areas of development you know, recognising it's not a weakness. Mm. It's just something which, you know, your life could be more productive, more enjoyable, more profitable, more content and fulfilled if these areas were improved on and we're going to help you do that. Mm. And for, a, say, like a farmer with an existing team, um, what's the first step would you say for them? Be like, okay, I'm managing these people. I want to get the best out of my business and the best out of the people within my business. What's the first step they should be taking? The first step that I'd be taking is understanding, having a mutual understanding of goals and vision. Yeah. Um, if, you know, if I go into a paddock and you as an employee don't understand the goals and vision of this business, and that might be, you know, weeks, months, years, five-year, ten-year mm. plans and different employees and members of the team will be involved to a different extent. But if people don't understand the core vision of, of what a business is about and the goals, then they can't really come aboard. Yeah, And, and then the, the mutual part of that is a business actually taking an interest in their employees and saying, you know, Tiff, what are your goals? What are you about? What do you really enjoy in your current role? Mm. You know? What do, you, what do you really not enjoy and how can we support you to, to build you on where you want to go? Um, it's, it's such a simple way, you know, because we've got different personality types that actually naturally suit different roles better. And you were like, I hate collecting those eggs every day. Like, I just go out there and look at these chooks and it just does my head in. And I'm like, oh, I didn't realise that. Righto, well, you know, eggs still need to be collected. But you do that and then every... Two days a week, can you go and do the cattle moves? Because yeah. that really fills your cup and you want to learn more about the cattle. Um, you know, just recognising, taking a genuine interest in the people you're with just improves everyone's lives. And with um, communication, as in not just within your business and within your people, but you have an incredible online, like I love your Instagram account. For farmers out there who are like, oh, I want to do what Blythe's doing, what's your tips there? Do you plan content? Do you just go out there and be like, oh, the chook's doing something funny? How do you go about that? Because you're very authentic in your storytelling. And I think that authenticity is key. I'm not a, I'm not a good planner. Yeah. Um, and I can't. I actually hate the idea of forward planning content. To me, I, I totally understand it's part of you know some businesses and things. Yeah. But if, if, my, far, if my socials are a, a window into our farm, then I feel some kind of inauthenticity yeah. in kind of or premeditation or manipulation if, I, if I'm planning it too much. Yeah. Um, so I'll sort of do content 
which I find interesting, which I find seasonal. I find it really interesting to word things. And I guess that's what was fun for everyone about Twitter at the beginning, was it actually reducing a thought or a process into quite a short snippet. And I really like the challenge of that. Yeah. And also the challenge of putting it in language which everyone could understand. Yeah, that's so true. Because um, words are powerful. Words yeah. are so powerful. And, and how language, yeah. how they make people feel and how, you know, making sure people feel included. And I don't mind, I don't mind conflict. I'm probably too comfortable dealing with conflict. <laughs> <laughs> but I also want, you know, I want to take people along on a, a trip that makes them feel included and seen and heard and learn from other people's perspectives as well. Yeah. And so it's that not being too confrontational or too black and white. And, you know, we discussed this earlier sort of off the tape is that I think women go into a conversation going, right, this is my world and this is how we do it. And this is, you know, from my experience, this is what I found works for me. But we don't close the door to, you know, there may be better ways out there. And I'm 100% open. If, If someone can do me better than me, then I should be learning not fearful or seen it as competition yeah you know if someone's running something differently in their chook operation or their cattle operation and i go oh i thought i was good at that but you're better i want to learn that yeah absolutely and just being um, open to knowing that there's a million different ways to doing things and always mm. on the hunt for doing it better i think yeah and it was this the conversation i think stemmed from i asked you about your experience in the middle east because i know for me as a woman in the middle east it's something you would have been asked this a lot i get asked what it's like as a woman over there and um we were saying how it sometimes there's benefits to that and you play on the benefit being different you know being a woman and sort of it still is i think male dominated over in the middle east um, how did you work that out pretty quickly and how did you use that to your advantage? Being like, okay, I'm different here. I'm going to use that rather than it be a weakness. Absolutely. And that, that's exactly it. It's seeing those differences. And so many of us have, you know, different parts of personality or life that can either be seen as an opportunity or a, or a weakness. Yeah. Um, and being a woman in the Middle East was, it was an opportunity. You know, you got, you were different, you got attention, but then it was what you did after that attention, yeah. which mattered. And along the whole communication line, and particularly working with the indentured labour, sort of within um, the feedlot, sort of feedlot and abattoir sections of industry, but also with you know a lot of the middle management mm-hmm. um, were from sort of Africa, India. You know they weren't the indentured labour, but most of their families weren't present with them mm-hmm. um, in the Middle East. And so, you know, these people were missing their mothers and their sisters and their daughters, you know, and their wives, but it's not in a, you know, that that relationship wasn't in a a sexual sense. No. But it was, you know, women communicate differently. And I think I've found it was a strange thing. They kept, because they're in a male-dominated area, that whenever there was a baby born, I would be like the first person they sought out because as a woman, they're like, oh, she's more open to like, I can be so open about the fact yeah. this is this is quite emotional, you know, and I loved that. I really, yeah. because I couldn't go to a fellow officer and be like, oh, look at my new babies. <laughs> and so, you know, you're there like looking at like, they're covered in sheep poo, looking at pictures of this newborn baby, like things like that, which I think um, I didn't realise at the beginning of my career within live export or even over there. But yeah, it's using that difference as an advantage. And I think my next question on LiveX, there's been a lot of changes since you started. You were over there pre-SCAS. What's been the 
biggest and do you think what has been some positive changes you've seen without your within your career the single biggest positive I guess you know SCAS was that big change Um, and SCAS was traumatic for a lot of people both in Australian businesses for exporters Um, that was a really tumultuous period and so much of it of things going on was out of our control Mm. Um, but big change happens through big pressure yeah and so being able to influence welfare all the way through the supply chain um, and having some consequences to non-conformance um, was a, a massive change. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, that set us onto the road we are now. From a more cultural perspective, I think the biggest and most positive change, and this is not blowing smoke up the butt of the Livestock Collective, <laughs> but it's the transparency in our communications. Um, You know, when I first started working over there, you know, we had a confidentiality clause, there were no photo clauses, we weren't allowed to share anything. Um, You know, if I was doing a radio interview with the ABC during an E program, I'd need written permission by the, you know, head of MLA. Um, It was so secretive and everyone was so worried about sharing what we did. And I guess it was part of that age and stage and that generation coming up through where I was, no, I'm actually really proud of what I'm doing yeah. here. And, you know, that information, that void being filled when we don't was so true that people are hearing all these awful things about what we do. Um, and, you know, that, that's not the story which I'm living. And I'm a woman on the ground in the Middle East. You know, I'm there at point of slaughter. I'm there in the feedlots. And absolutely there were things that need improving but that was not the whole story. Mm. Um, and so being able to share that story freely and create you know, the information and the content and just have people understand a bit about how at every point you know, there, is, there are people there who care yeah. and there are rules and structure in place to make sure we do it well. And you know, we are feeding the world and that is a responsibility. You know, mm. We have the ability to do it and we've got you know, hungry people to the north of us and hungry people in the Middle East and they need food security that we are able to provide and let's work all together and do it really well. Mm. Absolutely. And this is another big question to follow on to that. What advice would you give your younger self, whether life, with, you know, with a live export, just in general? I know a piece of advice you gave me when I first started out in export was the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. And that has stayed with me, not only on the ships, because as you would know, you, you set the standard, but in life in general, within my business, within working with livestock. But what, what other piece of advice have you got? Or what would you tell your younger self? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I still love, and that would be one of my key pieces of yeah. advice to everyone, because that personal integrity, you know, yeah. that really actually knowing in your heart of hearts and yourself that you, you know, you have standards and you are going to stand up for them um, is so important. I think to my younger self would be, you know, to seek out mentors. Yeah. And really there are so many people who are willing, you know, and you do need to prove yourself. You need to prove commitment and prove authenticity and prove integrity. Um, but there are a lot of people out there who are willing to, you know, take you under their wing and share so much with you. Um, so take that up and be, you know, respectful of that, you know, that offer and understand the value in the offer and, and seek people out and go, hey, you know, I need some help with this. And I think that is, you know, asking, recognising that no one has, not all of the answers to our problems are on the same set of heads and shoulders. Mm. You know, really creating that network. Um, and particularly a network of like-minded people 
who really believe in what you want to do and want to see you succeed. And that's where I guess those communication skills come in. You know, if you can communicate well, then you can seek out all of the answers that you need. And if you can't, then you're going to find barriers there. So really working on yourself, no matter what the personality type, to be able to, to find the answers you want. Love that. And um, my last question, and this is mainly just for me, where can we get your eggs? <laughs> and what's your social media so everyone can look you up? Because I love your Instagram page. It's, it's good. It's really fun. <laughs> I enjoy it. Sometimes I go weeks without. Yeah. And I think that's okay as well. Yeah. Like that's part of my authenticity is oh, I'm just not feeling it this week. And then yeah. I'll see something that goes, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so eggs, we're at the Manning Farmer's Market on Manning. So South Perth every Saturday morning. Yep. And I'm always up there for a, um, a coffee and a yarn. <laughs> yeah. Do you like when people bring you coffee? What's your I coffee order? I love when people bring coffee. Uh, just a flat white, no, no sugar. Worries, keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time after about 9.30, The queue yeah. should have died down by yeah, then. Yeah, and then our other eggs all go through Dirty Clean Food. Yep. And they distribute to actually a number of supermarkets and things. I think um, if there's not a pinned post on our socials, then I'll pop one up on where they are. Yeah. Uh, but they are, you know, like our slogan for them is taste the happiness. And you really can, yeah, like, cool. you know, there's just, they're so good and yeah. I never get sick of them. No, that's good. Um, and socials, we are Runnymead Pastured Eggs on Facebook, I think, and Runnymead Uduck on Insta. Cool. All right. We'll put that in the show notes as well. But thank you so much for your time today. That was a good chat. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> Country hospitality is alive and strong. We left Blythe's with enough eggs for a week and a new zest from her energy. We thank you again for your time, Blythe. If you know a livestock leader who you want to listen to on the podcast, please reach out. Yeah.